Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Ad Week podcast where we talk about advertising, marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad for something else. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. And with me this week, we've got, as always, Tim Nudd, our creative editor. Tim, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, David. And you are in our Manhattan headquarters in Scenic Hell's Kitchen alongside uh, Katie Richards, staff writer covering the Agency Beat. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. And first-time podcast attendee, also an agency reporter and senior editor at Adweek, Patrick Coffey. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Good to have you. And so... Uh, we got a lot going on today, so I'm going to dive right in. Uh, today on the podcast, we're going to unveil and explain our picks for agencies of the year. Uh, we have three of them. And also, the political divide of 2016 is still going with brands facing boycotts over the sites where they advertise or don't. And as always, uh, we're going to look at the week's best ads. But first, let's look at the news. Breitbart, a tremendously popular site with the, uh, the kind of invigorated conservative movement, uh, the alt-right, has started to uh, become a real centerpiece of debate among uh, brands and that uh, had been advertising there. Now that Breitbart is really more in the public eye with Steve Bannon uh, being put on Trump's uh, senior team, uh, we're seeing uh, a lot more debate around Breitbart. And it really came to a head in the last few days uh, with many brands uh, pulling their, their ads from the site, ad tech players pulling their uh, functionality from the site uh, because they are just not comfortable uh, with uh, what some see as a uh, kind of a neo-white supremacist movement growing on there uh, that is is more politically known as the alt-right. Specifically, Kellogg uh, pulled their ads uh, saying that the site's content did not align with our values as a company. Uh, Breitbart fired back calling for a boycott uh, to dump Kellogg uh, and got uh, a lot of support from their reader base and uh, people really hoping to put a serious hurt on the brand. Uh, they're not the only brand uh, that's pulling from Breitbart. Uh, also, we had Allstate, Nest, Earthlink, Warby Parker, and SoFi. That's as of a few days ago. A few more may have pulled since then, and I'm, I may just not be kind of up to date on it. Uh, but we've also had ad tech players, uh, Tube Mogul, Rocket Fuel, and AppNexus uh, pull out of the site as well. So it's not just Kellogg, but Kellogg is definitely the biggest brand and the one that I think consumers can have the most impact on. There's been some kind of positive reaction of people saying, oh, well, I'm going to support Kellogg even more. Uh, but I guess the, the, the question I have uh, for, the, for the panel, Katie, what do you think? Is the dump Kellogg movement, uh, is it really going to hurt uh, the company's brands? I mean, this is not a huge audience on Breitbart, but it's a it's become part of a bigger political discussion of which side you're on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely something that they should be concerned with. I don't think it's really going to hurt them in the long run. Um, I mean, I checked on the Dump Kellogg petition recently. I think it was a couple days ago. And I mean, they had a good amount of people that had signed it, maybe close to 400,000. But 
I really don't think you're going to see that having a huge impact on their sales or their brand reputation in the long run. Um, but it, I mean, it's interesting just to see how people are, how this election has divided people and how it's, you know, even getting into the, the brand space and the consumer space. I, I feel like we hear these boycott threats pretty often uh, from, from both sides, but especially lately more from conservatives wanting to, to you know, kind of retaliate against brands that, uh, you know, don't support Trump or don't support the conservative message uh, in the way that they like. But those don't really seem to pay off much. There was a mo- effort to boycott uh, Hamilton, the, the musical, after the the issues with Pence attending that one. I, I don't feel that that's really hurt uh, Hamilton in any way. If anything, it probably gave it a nice little publicity boost. Uh, Patrick, do you think these uh, are really going to have any impact? And, and also, what kind of message do you think it sends uh, to potential advertisers of Breitbart when it is kind of declaring war on companies that, that bought ads on its site? Well, th- this is reminiscent in a way of the sort of pseudo scandal at Gawker uh, last year about their advertisers that was allegedly based on their coverage of the gaming community. And it kind of turned out to be a big blow up over not a whole lot. I think if you if you speak to most um, PR people, they'll tell you that like social media protests, they can sort of catch fire quickly and seem like they're spreading and seem like they're trending, but they also disappear quickly. Um, they're sort of flash in the pan things, and it's it's not like, say, what happened to a company like Volkswagen or what happened to a company like uh, Samsung, where their product is flawed. This is more a case of people just kind of glomming onto one thing and then forgetting and moving on the the following week. So I don't I don't think that really, despite the fact that some advertisers have said we're no longer going to advertise on Breitbart, if the audience is there, eventually they're going to be there in some capacity. I think. And we'll probably forget about this. Oh, I, I mean, I was going to say, I think the other option is Breitbart could change its approach to content, but that seems unlikely at this point, given given their I fight. I seriously yeah. doubt that. <laughs> you know, I happen to think that this is great for Kellogg. I think uh, if you look over the last sort of five to ten years, you know, brands traditionally were, were really risk averse. And lately they've been less and less afraid to take a political stance. You know, you think about big, big brands like Google and, you know, Honeymade, which is a Mondelez brand. Um, Microsoft has a huge, a big new holiday commercial out now with all sorts of left-leaning activists working together on this art project. So, you know, really in the years that Obama was, has been in office, brands have really joined this parade of endorsing ideas of tolerance and acceptance of others, all these traditionally left-leaning causes. And the difference now is we're going to have the right wing leading the country. And so, uh, brands, which will always be left-leaning, uh, suddenly become sort of a, a protest voice, which is kind of interesting. You know, and th- this Breitbart thing is much more of an active protest. Uh, it's a very specific thing, uh, n- and not just against the right, but against the extreme right. Um, but, you know, brands are going to have to decide, you know, when and how much to sort of actively or tacitly oppose the Trump administration and the, and the ideas that it supports. Uh, you know, and it's not an easy call for brands, but I think they've shown in the last few years that they're willing to make a call where they're going to say, this is what we stand for. If you like us, buy more of us, our stuff. And if you don't like that, then then don't buy our stuff. And, and that's, you know, not something traditionally they've done. But, th- th- you know, I think it's for something like Kellogg's, I think they're going to get a sales boost out of this, perhaps. So it, it's we'll also, see. you know, more recently as yesterday, uh, we had a brand specifically Boeing uh, face kind of retaliation, it appears, from Donald Trump himself when the CEO of Boeing made some critical comments in a news article about his trade policies. And then just, I guess, coincidentally, Trump tweeted that he wanted to pull a multi-billion dollar contract from Boeing uh, and basically, you know, drop their stock. Not a negligible amount. It certainly uh you know, put a huge dent in their stock price to have the incoming president bashing your company and saying he wanted to pull billions of dollars from it. <laughs> and if, you know, if one believes that that was in retaliation uh, for Boeing CEO criticizing Trump, then it really does kind of highlight the next uh, few years are going to be high stakes uh, for these brands making these decisions. To your point, Tim, it's been kind of easy in the last few years to say, oh, we're going to support tolerance, we're going to support inclusiveness. But now, if you kind of take that into the protest territory or criticism territory, uh, then there's going to be retaliation in the form of, of maybe a uh, you know petition or a boycott, maybe the president himself coming out and slamming you and hurting your stock price. Uh, so. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a real financial story there. I mean, if, if if Trump came out and said, don't eat Frosted Flakes on Twitter, I'd be more worried then if I was Kellogg than, than Breitbart sort of threatening them. You know, so there's degrees of, of things to worry about if you're the brand. But this Kellogg's thing, I think I wouldn't be that concerned. I'd, in fact, I'd look for, for you know, s more sales support in the coming weeks if I were Kellogg right now. So uh, let's move on to something a little more positive or at least less political. Uh, we had some interesting updates coming out of the streaming and the broadcast community. There was an, a, big, a big event in the broadcast industry called the UBS Global Media and Communications Conference. Uh, the average, uh, you know, person doesn't isn't really aware of this event, but within the industries involved, it's a pretty big deal. And so basically this is a time when a lot of the major uh, players come out and give updates on what they're up to. Netflix uh, content chief Ted Sarandos came out and uh, talked about what they have in the works. So specifically, they have 30 original shows in development on Netflix and in, in some stage of development at the moment. That's twice as many as last year. That And he says it's going to be twice that number next year. Uh, so Netflix really doubling down, literally doubling down, on uh, their original content. Uh, and so I, I guess let me stop there before I talk about what some of the other uh, networks are up to. It feels like this is a, a vital play for Netflix's survival because Netflix has this huge penetration in homes. But at this point, if they don't keep that content faucet coming uh, and keep it on, then they're going to risk people dropping off. Uh, Katie, what's your take on kind of Netflix original programming? I, are, are you a Netflix subscriber, I guess I should start with? I am, yeah. I'm, I'm big on the Netflix programs. Yeah. So, so do you think this is kind of smart, too? If they're going to pick their efforts, really focus on this and on kind of extending existing programming like Gilmore Girls rather than just going out and trying to get, you know, fight with Hulu and everybody for every other show on the market? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting just to see what types of programming they, they like move into, because I think so far they've been really smart about, you know, They've gotten, obviously, Gilmore Girls was a big success for them. Say what you will about how the story actually played out. But it, you know, a lot of people were tuning in to watch it. Um, and they've, you know, Stranger Things was a huge hit. The Crown has been really big. So I think it'll just kind of depend on what types of programs they kind of decide to keep pushing into. And if they're actually, you know, tapping into stories that people are interested in and actually want to watch. Um, but I think... The original thing is, I think they're the best at it. I mean, if you look at some of the things that, you know, Amazon has or Hulu has, I think they can't really compare to Netflix. And I think they're, it's a smart decision for them to keep going down that route since they're kind of the leader, I think. Well, I think, you know, I think Orange is the New Black was a big, th was a big moment for them. You know, they, they get into shows that are really sort of, you know, conversational touch points culturally. Um, you know, the whole um, transgender conversation around that show and just, the, you know, women, female empowerment and all that. Like the, the shows like that really put Netflix, at, you know, at the center of like the water cooler conversation, I think. Um, what's amazing to me is, I mean, they're going to double shows in development this year to, I think it said 30, and then they're going to double that next year too. I mean, the volume of stuff in production seems crazy. And then you've got, you know, you've got HBO doing it, you know, on, on the rise again with Westworld. Uh, you've got Amazon, which is a smaller player uh, so far in original programming, but Transparent's been an enormous critical success. Um, so you've got all these players who are just doing more and more. I don't know how many hours of the evening we, we, we're going to have left. Um, I don't know how we're going to keep up with all this content because it's really good content, too. Yeah, so so we'll be interesting to see, and and especially to see whether Amazon and some of the and Hulu continue to to really try to keep pace with this. But I think if anything, Netflix is just trying to establish itself as kind of the original programming uh, dominator. I want to move on to one other bit of corporate news before we get to ads worth watching, and that's Starbucks. Uh, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz is stepping down. Uh, this he is one of those few CEOs. I think the average American, uh, well, maybe not the average American, but mo a lot more people can name Howard Schultz than can name, say, the CEO of Delta. Uh, or Amex or something like that. Uh, he kind of famously, in a bit of a uh, parallel to Steve Jobs, uh, came on with, with the company in, the, in its early, very early days. He was its director of marketing, and then he bought the company for just an amazing price of $3.8 million, which is just so fun you know, to imagine. Uh, and, and it was because, not to get sidetracked, but it was because the owners of Starbucks wanted to focus on Pete's Coffee, uh, their other brand. And so they sold Starbucks to him for $3.8 million in 1980. 
And uh, he, in 2000, he kind of famously took eight years off as CEO and then came back in 2008. Uh, and when he came back, he really, he closed hundreds of locations and really made Starbucks focus on its core business, uh, which has really guided their their mindset. And he says he's way more optimistic this time about handing off to their current CEO, COO because uh, he thinks they will retain this focus. Uh, what's interesting to me about Schultz is there is this mythology around him, and it again is this very uh, kind of Jobs, uh, Steve Jobs story that he left and came back, and and the company had fallen off the rails, and he beat it back into shape and made it a lean profit machine. That's not an accurate story in the sense that he actually kind of slowed its global growth and its diversification, which a lot of companies would be. I mean, they had had just staggering growth in between his his tenure. Uh, but he did refine what Starbucks is and kind of got it out of a lot of these, uh, you know, little side brands that they were launching and a lot of the more restauranty vibe, I think that they, they were going for uh, with a lot more food. So I guess my question for you guys is, you, you know, Katie, what do you think? Should Starbucks kind of stay on its current trajectory and, and really just retain the focus of what it's doing now? Or do you, do you think it does need to innovate if it wants to remain kind of a, a relevant mega brand? I mean, I think I think it was it was smart to kind of pull back and not go into so many of these side projects that they had done. It it just got really overwhelming and I mean, that being said, you know, you see a Starbucks on pretty much every corner in this city, so it, you know, they're doing something right and I think as long as they continue to keep that momentum and kind of really as you've said like figure out what the core of the brand is, then maybe they can push forward and do some different you know, different exciting things, but they're a brand that I don't think is ever going to go away because it's just so, it's just everywhere. I mean, you go to any city, any state, it's on every corner. So I, I really think that they're on the right path and I think they should just kind of keep doing what they're doing for now. One thing I remember noticing in the in the two thousand in the late two thousands was that they really started. Starbucks used to try to get you out the door as fast as possible. Like, here's your drink, get the hell out, and um, that was their model, you know, it's just high churn of, of drink production. Uh, in the last few years, they've literally put up signs that say like, sit, stay a while. Like they are, they are very specifically trying to become a community gathering place, which was Schultz's original vision. And, and it was what the original owners of Starbucks wouldn't go along with. And so he started one called like Il Journal. Uh, I'm probably butchering the Italian, but he started this like little, little tiny chain of these cafes in the way that we think of Starbucks or independent coffee shops now. And that's what ended up becoming the model for so I think that especially in this time where Internet discourse has gotten so nasty that I, I, I personally think Starbucks will continue to push that idea of being a community gathering place for, for kind of in-person discussion. But I guess we shall see. One point on that, David, is that I was recently in uh, Houston, Texas, and there was a Starbucks there that said that as part of like a little experiment, they're starting to serve wine in the evenings and to have be open later hours which is kind of like, it seems like they're doing this on a regional basis to see how well it works and then whether they can adopt it, you know. So I think that kind of supports what you're saying about the, the idea about them focusing more on community. Mm. Ah, very interesting. Well, that's it for the news this week. Uh, lots of stuff going on. So check out adweek.com for uh, even more. Uh, but we want to move on to my favorite segment of the show every week, Ads Worth Watching. Tim, every week you pull out the best ads so that uh, we don't have to sit through the garbage. What are the best ads? And I have a feeling I know which one you're going to talk about soon because it has been just the talk of the uh, ad circles and of normal human beings for the last week. Uh, tell us uh, what's on the plate. So, yeah, the first one we have to talk about is um, this ad called Evan um, from BBDO New York. And it's become one of the runaway hits of the year. Um, I think it broke last Friday. We were the first... Uh, first site to write about it and it kind of went crazy from there if, if you haven't watched it you should pause the podcast right now and go to youtube and type in sandy hook evan e-v-a-n and just watch it and um we'll wait for you to come back um because we're going to probably spoil it right now it's uh basically it's an ad it starts out in a high school and it's about a boy, a boy named evan teenager um there's a really light and happy soundtrack and it's um, um month or two before the summer break and he's really bored and he starts to um, write on his desk. He writes, I am bored on his desk. And then he, come back, so he comes back the next day and someone's written back to him and says, hi, bored, nice to meet you. And so for the rest of the ad, Evan tries to figure out who's been writing back to him. 
it's sort of this you know mystery uh, romance high school story and as Evan's trying to figure that out the viewer is also trying to figure out you know who's been writing back to him and he sort of is looking at classmates as they come and go and at the very end of the spot um, it, they're in the gymnasium and Evan finally meets the, the girl who's been writing back to him and they they're sort of chatting about it and then suddenly in this um, very shocking twist uh, another kid walks into the gym and uh, you see him in the background and he's got an, an assault rifle of some kind and uh, suddenly you realize that it, there's a school shooting that's about to happen and so maybe we should just stop here and just listen to a little bit of the end of the spot. Hey, you must be bored. <laughs> no way. <laughs> this is the guy that I was running to in the library. Kind of, oh. Yeah. Like guilty. So. Oh <laughs> so you like to write on desks? Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, text comes up on the screen after that, and it says, um, while you were watching Evan, another student was showing signs of planning a school shooting, uh, but no one noticed. And then the ad goes back and shows you almost every scene again, and you, you begin to see that um, in every scene there was a kid who's getting bullied, or he's looking at a uh, gun magazine, he's miming uh, shooting a teacher, uh, you see him in an Instagram photo um, sh pointing a gun at the camera. And so each scene, it turns out, um, there was a sign that this other student in the school uh, was planning a shooting. And you are, uh, the viewer is so caught up in the storytelling of this completely other story that has nothing to do with the shooting um, that you miss, you, know, you miss all these signs. And that's the whole point of the ad, which is um, gun violence is preventable if you know the signs. And so you should look for the signs every day. And... You know, it's one of these ads that, I mean, it was so well made. It was BBDO New York, and the smuggler director, uh, Henry Alex Rubin, was the director. Um, uh, he's done tons of ads, including the Gatorade Derek Jeter retirement spot from a few years back that was so popular. He also directed the documentary Murder Ball, which was pretty amazing, too. Um, and it's just really great uh, misdirected storytelling. And I, I can't re recall an ad that's provoked you know, such a reaction from almost everyone who sees it. It's been all over Facebook. I think it's, it's been shared uh, th th over 300,000 times. Just our, just our story alone has been shared, I mean, like crazy. And people say they get chills watching it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a pretty incredible ad. And, and don't be surprised if it shows up next week on our, on our list of the year's best work. Yeah, I mean, I, it was interesting. I was kind of reading some of the comments that people were leaving on our story and then on Facebook. Um, and, you know, there was a bit of debate from people about whether this is actually going to prevent gun violence. And I, you know, I don't know if I can say one way or another if it actually will. But from on a personal level, you know, watching it, I had I really didn't see any of the signs. And it really made me personally kind of stop and think like, you know, I, I didn't see anything happen, and so now you know I'm kind of making a conscious effort to kind of pick up on any kind of signs, just be more aware in general because it it really was shocking. It, and for me, it, it did send chills down my spine. I mean, it was not what I was expecting at all. So, you know, if it can help a few people here and there kind of be more aware, I think it's it's done its job. Yeah, I think the reality of the ad um, and the reality of what you should be doing in your life or, or to, to maybe to prevent you know, a tragedy like this are probably a little bit different. The ad is designed to make you miss th those signs. And so you t the takeaway is not that you should have necessarily seen them in the commercial, but you know, uh, millions and millions of people um, have watched the spot and they, what they take away from it is this idea that maybe something is, is wrong with someone close to me that I, that I haven't noticed. And so um, it, it doesn't mirror, you know, what you should, the action you should take in your life, I think, doesn't necessarily mirror what you should have done watching the commercial. But I think the takeaway is um, probably going to be pretty effective, at least in the short term. F you know, family members kind of like look, looking at their loved ones and, and, and maybe class, you know, high school students looking at, at their classmates and trying to figure out if anyone needs some help. Uh, it's, you know, it's based on, also this commercial is based on some research that says that um, apparently something like 80% of people who um, commit school shootings uh, did mention something to someone beforehand and, that th and those signs were not heeded. And so it is based on, um, there are signs that, that can be, you know, that you, c you could see if you, if you were looking for them. And that's, you know, uh, 
that's really the, the message of this commercial. And I think it was done so skillfully. And it's, I think the reaction to it and the, the amount of times it's been shared um, shows that it really has connected on, on some level. And hopefully it will make a difference. Who's the client here? Uh, the client is uh, Sandy Hook Promise, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit uh, that was set up and is led by um, some of the parents of the kids who, who were um, killed at Sandy Hook Elementary in, uh, in Connecticut four years. It's four years ago this month. And, you know, I, I, they've done some advertising over the years, but, um, you know, as, as with a lot of, uh, you know, and it's also important to mention this is not a gun control PSA. This is a, this is not trying to get guns out of anybody's hands. This is basically just let's try to see the warning signs uh, with troubled kids before they do something like this. I thought that that it was if, if I could be fatalistic for a moment. I thought that it, in that way it signified a significant political shift in this country. Essentially admitting that the gun control debate is over for now. I mean, if you compare it to like the work that Gray did last year where they set up the fake gun store in downtown Manhattan and then they kind of, uh, the, the purpose there was to show people what these guns eventually do, which is kill other people, and to, to argue in favor of making those guns harder to acquire, whereas the BBDO spot as was very effective emotionally and it, it, it was logical too, but there was nothing anywhere about gun control. And I don't think that um, as much as it remains a hot topic and then there is going to continue to be some degree of debate, I don't think that campaigns will touch on it as directly as they have in the past, given that there's absolutely no chance of any gun control related um, laws passing Congress right now. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, Tim, uh, what else do you have for this week? Anything a little more uh, positive, happy? Yeah, a, a little bit more lighthearted. So um, commercials for the holidays and Christmas are, are, of course, still rolling out. We've done a couple of podcasts where we've talked about that some of the best ones so far. You know, we talked about uh, H&M, the Wes Anderson spot, and before that, of course, way back uh, the beginning of November, there was the the slew of, of British ads um, led by the John Lewis campaign. Um, but another one broke late last week uh, that we wrote about on adweek.com, and it's, this one's actually from Poland, and it's always kind of interesting to see great Christmas commercials come from someplace other than England. You know, last year we had, and in fact this year too, the Spanish lottery had, had a pretty great, uh, always has pretty great Christmas advertising. But this is uh, a Polish spot from an agency called uh, Bardzo in Warsaw, and it's for an online marketplace called Allegro, and it's a really sweet story. It's kind of a, a long-form spot. Um, you don't really know what's happening until the very, very end. It's an old man who orders an English for uh, English for beginners uh, set through through this uh, the client through the marketplace that the client runs, and he begins to learn English. And there's lots of cute scenes of him sort of taping stickies on everything around his house, and uh, he's listening to tapes on the on the bus and professing his love or or using learning phrases to say "I love you." And the other passengers on the bus are a little freaked out by him. Um, and in the end, there's sort of a, uh, a cute twist ending that I, I won't reveal, but you guys should just uh, check out uh, Allegro. If you, if you search for Allegro, A-L-L-E-G-R-O, on Adweek, uh, you'll find the ad. And it was just a really cute uh, story. You know, and, and there's been a few of these this year. The, the Heathrow commercial, the, the, the holiday ad for Heathrow Airport in England was almost like a similar idea with an, with an older... Uh, that was an older couple, uh, elderly couple, traveling for the holidays, and and likewise, this 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 guy uh, ends up traveling, and and there's a uh, there's a, there's an ending that's very very sweet. So, um, it's been this one's also been talked about quite a bit uh, on Facebook, and it's been it's turning out to be one of the more beloved uh, spots this season. And uh, wh- anything else? Uh, you always uh, bring some interesting stuff that's not traditional ads, but something worth uh, checking out. Uh, what do you have on that front? So we, we spoke about Netflix earlier, and you know one, one thing that Netflix does that's kind of interesting is that they are sort of into um, what's known as maker culture, where they, you know, they're obviously um, not a physical brand. Their product is purely virtual. It's just uh, it's on the television screen. Uh, and so a lot of brands that are virtual like this, you know, Google in particular comes to mind. They, they often like to make physical things to give their brand sort of a physical dimension, and Netflix has done this in a bunch of different ways over the years, often working with this Pittsburgh agency called Deep Local, which um, kind of specializes in um, gadgetry and circuits and things like that. And they do a lot of interesting um, virtual meets physical uh, marketing. So 
Um, one thing that, that uh, Deep Local made this week, uh, they rolled it out this week, it was uh, uh, Mr. Bear, which was a, uh, one of the girls in, in Full House had, had a bear called Mr. Bear. Uh, and they made a uh, a, a real uh, uh, Mr. Bear, and and they've sort of connected it and gave it like a, a beating red heart. And apparently, if you buy two of these and and you connect them, um, even if they're even if one is in your house and the other one you send to your you know like a loved one around the world somewhere, uh, and they have it in their house, if you hug them both at the same time, it will turn on Netflix, I, I believe, and uh, maybe even will start. Uh, it's for Fuller House, which is the s- second season of Fuller House, um, is hitting Netflix later in the week. So that was kind of a funny thing. And then separately, Netflix also made this uh, kind of goofy thing for Gilmore, the Gilmore Girls uh, reunion uh, series, which is four 90-minute episodes. Um, they made a, a candle that burns. Um, apparently, uh, it'll burn for six hours, so that the the exact length of the four episodes, if you binge watch them all together, and um, after 90 minutes... Of, of each episode, uh, the, the candle smells different, and, and apparently it smells like the seasons of the year. So um, kind of funny, you know, that, that a brand like Netflix would would do this kind of thing. They, they worked with Deep Local a few years ago, or maybe it was last year. Um, they made some socks that you could buy um, that somehow monitored your, your pulse, and if you, these socks would, uh, would realize if you fell asleep, and it would pause your show. So that was kind of weird. And then prior to that, Deep Local made a button that you could have in your in your um, living room, where, where if you press the button, it would, uh, if you connected it up properly with with your gadgets and your and your house, it would dim your lights for you, it would silence your phone, it would order food, and it would turn on Netflix. So you could uh, you could use this one button, and it, of course these are goofy sort of stunts, um, but it you know it gives Netflix that extra sort of playful dimension as a brand. And, you know, it's kind of fun to see, you know, what Deep Local comes up with every year. And uh, I think the, the candle was made by some other uh, company. I'm not sure if that was, I don't think that was Deep Local, but they did the, uh, the Fuller House Bear. And, yeah, I mean, these are just, just fun things. They're PR stunts. Um, but we did, uh, Sammy Main, one of our writers here, um, actually got the candle in the mail. And she's going to try it this weekend, so maybe we can re- report back with her next week on how, how, how it went with the candle. <laughs> Well, thanks, as always, Tim, for wrapping up the ads worth watching and uh, weird gadgets and inventions worth checking out. Uh, Now, I want to make sure we save plenty of time for our big feature of the week. It's a huge week for us here at Adweek because we announced our agencies of the year. Uh, We don't name too many. Uh, Essentially, they break down into three categories, our U.S. Agency of the Year, Global Agency of the Year, and then also a relatively new category. Uh, this is the second year that we've done the Breakthrough Agency of the Year. And what we mean by that is just the agency that kind of, while it may not have been the ab- absolute best in the industry across every category, it exploded to a new level. Uh, last year, we featured Heat, uh, the San Francisco agency uh, that does a lot of the work for EA, specifically the Madden season uh, work, uh, and has really kind of been coming into its own. So this year's winners, uh, without further delay, the U.S. Agency of the Year is Droga5. Uh, They did not win last year, but they won the year before. So they were our 2014 Agency of the Year and now the 2016 U.S. Agency of the Year. Our Global Agency of the Year is Ogilvy & Mather Worldwide. And it's been quite a few years since they won, honestly. Off the top of my head, I don't remember when. And the Breakthrough Agency of the Year is Venables, Bell, and Partners, uh, which has been around for about 15 years but really exploded onto the scene uh, this year in an in a even bigger way with uh, coming off their work for REI and then uh, really blowing up some amazing work for Audi. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk about the U.S. Agency of the Year. Katie, you wrote a profile of Droga5, uh, an agency that is arguably, if not inarguably, kind of the uh, – one of the best known and most respected or most uh, watched agencies out there right now. What, how would you describe their year? What made them the best agency of the year? Uh, well, a couple of things kind of stand out to me. Obviously, first they had, you know, some crazy growth in the last year, um, 35% increase in their revenue from last year. And if you go to their Wall Street office, I mean, the number of people that they're adding is just insane. They're expanding and taking over new floors all the time, it seems like. Um, they've also, you know, they added some, you know, big new clients. They expanded some of their previous, um, uh, previous relationships. So they have, they added 
some new Chase business, and they've been working with Chase for quite a while, and they added, um, they'd been working with Android, and they added Google Pixel. And they've also, um, you know, gotten a lot of work from not pitching, which I think is kind of interesting. So they just recently won Sprint from Deutsch without pitching, and I think that kind of says a lot about the capabilities of an agency when they can win such big business without having to go through that pitch process. And then, of course, they just, you know, they had some of the best creative work of the year. I think, you know, we would all agree that some of the work they did for Under Armour was just, you know, the best of the year, maybe the best ever. Um, you know, they had the spot with Michael Phelps for the Olympics, the U.S. gymnastics team. And they also had, you know, they, they had some funny stuff for Johnsonville and Clearasil. I mean, they just had such a wide range that I think they were kind of the best and the ones to beat for next year. They also felt like they had a tremendous amount of relevance, which is something we talk about every year. Uh, they worked on the Clinton campaign. They made what is uh, probably the most memorable of all the Clinton spots, role models, where it showed children watching Donald Trump's comments. Uh, and, and I feel like just in a lot of other ways, uh, Droga was just kind of had their finger on the pulse this year in a way that they did not. Obviously, they were probably disappointed uh, with the results of the election, but I still felt like they were just a, a lot more relevant in, than many of the other agencies in the country. Uh, Tim, you've been covering Droga for, for many years uh, since they, they started 10 years ago uh, as kind of a, a viral content uh, player. How have you seen them evolve in the last few years and how would you describe the, the year that Droga had? Well, you know, I think uh, 2014 was a big year for them when we last named them Agency of the Year. That was, um, you know, they had such great work for Newcastle, and that was when they had their first work for, they did their first work for Under Armour, the Misty Copeland spot in particular, which broke in August of 2014. Um, that, was, that was really, you know, they, they, they were expanding into such a major player then, and I think what happened in 2015 is they, they still did really solid work, um, but it, it didn't really... Uh, evolve, you know, much past what they had done in 2014. I think what they did this year is they really found um, a new gear to, to, to turn turn up. Um, part of that was just Under Armour. I mean, everything they've done. Um, Katie mentioned the the Olympics work, the Phelps spot, the, the the U.S. gymnastics team. You know, that work was so good, and you know, that was uh, I think a, a level that they hadn't reached before for Under Armour. And you know, Android. Um, that rock, paper, scissors ad that was on the, um, I think it was on the Grammys, or it, it broke on one of the big entertainment uh, award shows. That was really great work. Um, you know, the Hennessy spot, the, the Picards, I mean, that was, uh, that just showed, uh, you know, Droga's uh, ability just in terms of craft and making, you know, beautiful set pieces like that. Um, and you mentioned uh, working on on the Hillary campaign. I mean, this is an agency that really just, you know, is is right in the in the cultural conversation. Um, they continue to do great work for Honeymade, um, which is which has its political overtones. Uh, the Johnsonville stuff was really clever, um, you know, having the the employees, uh, you know, come up with the ideas for the ads was was really funny. Uh, the clear sill spot is is one of my favorites of the year. You know, it's just so deadpan, and and you know, the voiceover on that commercial was just so funny. So I don't know. I mean, I think uh, you know they're they're getting bigger and bigger, and the the question for them is how to stay as creative as they are when uh, you know a guy like you know a guy like Ted Royer you know admits he doesn't he doesn't know everyone in the building anymore. Um, so how do you keep you know how do you keep uh, yourself relevant and creative at, you know at 700, 800, 900 people, which is what they're they're heading towards in the next year probably. Who are the, you mentioned Ted Royer, and I think they're, everyone knows David Droga. I mean, anyone who's involved with advertising knows his name by now. Uh, but I feel like there are a lot of uh, big players that are shaping kind of the creati the creativity and the business growth at Droga. Um, I'll ask Katie this too, but but first, Tim, who would you say are some of those uh, kind of behind the scenes people that, that the average uh, person may not be aware of uh, at Droga? Well, of course, you've got Kevin Brady uh, and Neil Heyman, who are the, the ECDs over there. Um, also, Tim Gordon, who's the group creative director, who, who really spearheaded a lot of the Under Armour work. Uh, there's also Felix Richter and, uh, and uh, uh, Alex. Uh, I'm blanking on his last name, but th those guys are a creative team that worked on. They, they did some work on Under Armour also, and uh, they really sort of single-handedly did the Hennessy work. So, you know, creatively, um, they've got all these sort of superstar, rising superstar players um, who really, f you know, f I think they found a home there uh, and they have a lot of freedom to sort of express themselves and, and uh, you know, 
creatively, they're unmatched at the moment in the U.S. and probably in the world. And I and I, I do have to give a lot of credit to both Ted Royer and David Colbush in London of you know that those guys are. Uh, really passionate about their industry and craft. And it's always refreshing getting to talk to them or to follow them uh, in social because they just lack that cynicism that I think a lot of veteran creatives have. Um, and so I, I really do think that that's uh, kind of a driving factor in Droga's success. Uh, Katie, tell us a little bit more that people may not know about kind of how the business story uh, of Droga and how you see them growing in, in terms of their leadership and in terms of their business over the next year. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, obviously, Tim mentioned a lot of the great people on the creative side, but they're one of the things about Droga that always stands out to me is just how much they talk about how they're strategically driven. So their strategy department is a really central part of the business. Um, so Johnny Bauer, their global chief strategy officer, is, um, you know, I had a chance to talk with him, and he's he's kind of focused on a lot of the different products and things that they're going to actually build. So they're in the next year, they're working on building um, a whole studio where you're going to be able to have, you know, they're going to have everything from edit suites to spots where you can, um, you know, demo and test VR. So it's going to be a lot of prototyping and building things for clients. So I think that's kind of going to be something to keep an eye on. Um, and yeah, just, you know, they're, they're really focused on the strategy side of things. So looking at how they're going to build out that strategy side of the business will be interesting. And also growing their relationship uh, with William Morris Endeavors. I mean, they've done a couple of things with like The Rock and The Rock Clock and some other backpack, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so it'll be cool to see, you know, who they tap into in the future, what celebrities, how they leverage that to kind of build the business and help their clients in different and new ways. Patrick, what is Drogo's reputation, not not Drogo himself necessarily, but the agency's reputation within the agency world? How, how are they, how do others talk about them? Uh, to be frank, there's a lot of jealousy. I think that there's there's a sense that they are on a role that that very few other agencies can, can compare uh, in the sense of their new business wins and their, I mean, I know that um, there are a lot of agencies would would like to be in their position right now in the sense of as as Katie mentioned with Sprint, you have this massive advertiser essentially cutting off its previous agency of record and saying we want to work with Droga specifically, which is uh, it's easy to understand why people would see where they are and think how can we get there. So I wanted to uh, move on. We could uh, obviously Droga is always a fun shop to talk about and we can uh, maybe revisit them in a little bit. But I did want to cover some of the other agencies. Uh, our global agency of the year was Ogilvy and Mather. Uh, Christine Berkner, who wrote that story, uh, isn't, isn't on the podcast today, uh, but I can kind of speak to that. She and I worked closely on this feature. Uh, it, to be candid, it was not the, the strongest year for global candidates. Uh, there wasn't you know, necessarily that one shop that blew us away in the way that uh, Gray did last year with this combination of growth and creative work. Uh, this year, it was really more nuanced uh, finding the agency that kind of checked off the most boxes in terms of their success, but also really uh, seemed to kind of be the most relevant in terms of the the bigger issues facing the industry. And in that respect, I think Ogilvy was a really strong uh, choice for the winner. You know, they had pretty uh, pretty decent growth when you are a multi-billion dollar company uh, to, to grow 2% globally. They grew very strong in their New York office, uh, had a lot of uh, strategic growth and creative growth in South America, in Asia, a lot of client growth in Asia and in China, uh, which are, are really vital areas. But to me, the most interesting thing is that this was a year kind of defined by chaos in leadership, uh, both at, on the global political stage with Brexit, with Donald Trump, with this kind of disruptive changes in leadership, but also in the agency world. World. I mean, Patrick alone has covered, I, I think, upward of five CEOs who have been ousted, uh, you know, for doing dumb things, for, uh, you know, sexist behavior or for, uh, you know, abusing client uh, money. Uh, so it's really been a year of, of kind of constant uh, chaos on the leadership front. Meanwhile, Ogilvy uh, lost its longtime CEO, Miles Young, uh, who decided to step down, take a, a university job. And there was a lot of question at the time last year when he, when he announced he would be leaving of kind of what does this mean for Ogilvy and, and is it going to enter this uh, 
you know, this new era, what will that be like? Uh, he handed it off to John Seifert, the new CEO, uh, who was already established. He was already kind of a close partner uh, with Miles. And since then, they have really spent the last, eight, you know, they spent eight, nine months uh kind of going traveling around the world and really introducing John to the players across the the, the world. Uh, Tam Kai Ming, uh, their creative chief on the global level, continues to really uh, play a, a big role. And what they said in our in our story is that they have these twin peaks that they aspire to, which is the uh, creativity and uh, effectiveness. And those peaks are defined for them by wins at can, uh, I you know being the the sign that they are doing extremely well creatively, and then wins at the effies, uh, showing that they are doing well on uh, results uh, because the effies are kind of the industry gold standard for uh, effectiveness in your advertising. So a very interesting uh, story there, and I encourage you to check out. Uh, just you can look up Ogilvy, uh, Global HCD, or any any combination thereof, and you'll find it on Adweek. Uh, Patrick, though, I did want to talk to you about our breakthrough agency of the year, which you wrote up. Uh, breakthrough this year was Venables Bell. Uh, they are based in San Francisco, another independent shop. So in that, in those regards, uh, a lot like heat, choosing Heat uh, last year. Uh, but really, I feel like for them, it was just a story of kind of a, a shop that a lot of people may know, but couldn't have been able to describe all that uh, detailed. Uh, but now they are just uh, one of those shops that you have to be paying attention to. So tell me a little bit about the year that Venables Bell had and why we chose them as Breakthrough Agency. Well, uh, at at risk of veering into cliche here, I think that Venable's year really was the triumph of traditional, quote unquote, advertising in an era when every conversation about a campaign follows with questions like, where's your Snapchat activation? Did you create a messenger bot? Which fringe influencers are you working with? Whereas Venable's was ad you know tv based advertising with strong planning and strategy underlying it i think that uh, when i interviewed them their creative leader will mcginnis made the point of saying that they are a lot of their campaigns this year were arranged around significant events and this all sort of started late last year with the opt outside campaign for rei which was uh, rei you know specified that it was the company itself that came up with that concept, but it was Venables that that really executed on it. And then they followed with the Super Bowl spot, which was for Audi, um, which featured uh, Starman by David Bowie. And uh, another big one for Audi was Duel, which aired uh, during the first presidential debate. And it's kind of like to me, those are classic advertising in that they're both based on a fairly ridiculous premise. The the first one, the idea that um, Audi is such a great car that this former astronaut can feel like he's flying through space again when he's driving it. And the second one, based on the idea that, again, Audi is such a high-quality car that these chauffeurs will compete over who gets to park one. But it's all about, like... Venables executing on these ideas and you kind of forgetting how ridiculous they are in the moment and just going with the energy that that their campaigns have. Uh, but again, all these were very carefully planned to coincide with, with these moments when lots of people would be watching live TV in order to maximize exposure. And that's not to say that Venables doesn't do social media. I know that uh, one thing that they've that they did this year was that they split their agency internally into five divisions, one of which is social, um, one of which is activation, et cetera. Then they have their own um, in-house production unit. But again, it's just showing that you need a 30-second film. It needs to be compelling. It needs to deliver both emotionally and conceptually. And I think that their work did that this year. Um, on a level that we hadn't seen previously, even though they are not a new agency. One thing that came up in one of your interviews that I thought was a really good point and kind of highlights why we chose them as breakthrough is uh, one of your sources said, you know, we used to compete with and, and felt like we competed with the other San Francisco agencies, that we were a kind of a local regional player now we're operating at this whole new level. It definitely does feel like that was the story of this year and and maybe to a lesser extent the last few years, but really this is the year that Venables uh, became a a global player 
uh, in the in that agency competitive space of of these shops that you can name off the top of your head of you know the Wyden and Kennedys and the BBDOs, uh, and so it seemed like they're aware that their competitive set has has changed in the last few years, right, Patrick? Absolutely, I think. Well, the, the clearest sign of that is the fact that uh, Paul Venables himself got a phone call from an executive with the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, saying that they had personally selected Venables as one of, I believe, three agencies that they contacted to to work on their ads, including Droga 5, and uh, I believe Burrell Communications was was the third. But um, to me, that's just evidence of their profile rising. I mean, not sure what work he had seen, although you think that it might, it may well have been REI. Uh, I know Paul Venables told me during our interview that pretty much every potential client who came into his office uh, since last fall has said, opt outside, we want some of that. And people now look to Venables as an agency that can do that. It will be interesting over the next few years to see whether they can continue delivering these big campaigns that, that get attention, that actually score coverage from um, outlets that that normally don't touch the ad industry. And I also think that the fact that they are truly an independent agency um, continues to distinguish them in the sense that there's no one really to compare them to with their level of influence except for Wyden and Kennedy. Even an agency like Droga 5 that defines itself as independent, they are 49% owned by WME, um, so while they're still technically independent, they have investors, whereas VB&P does not. And that was another thing that all their executives stressed to me during the interview is that they don't have this pressure to deliver quarterly results. You know, they're, they're not sitting there on phone calls with journalists talking about how they're going to boost their revenue for the next quarter so that they can be a little more daring in that respect. And I think that based on what they told me, we're going to see more work from them in, in the years ahead that is not, that is a little more experimental, that is a little more experiential. Uh, they have a division called VBP Orange that has won some fairly big name contracts recently. Most prominently, they designed the, uh, I believe it's called the brand showcase uh, for Facebook, which is at their headquarters in Menlo Park in California. So, Essentially, whenever you walk into Facebook's office, you will see VBP Orange's work. And I think that that's where Venables is going to go uh, beyond their traditional work that you're going to continue to see as well. Tim, I, I feel like uh, that VBP really got on my radar back in 2011 Super Bowl, even though that's the year everyone remembers for VW's The Force from Deutsch. Uh, one of my lingering kind of favorites from that year was the, I think it was called Release the Hounds, but it was uh, Venable's uh, uh, Audi spot with the prison break uh, from the kind of the luxury prison where they, where they, the word says like uh, hit him with the Kenny G and then they, they have a nice Kenny G cameo. I just remember that spot really kind of hitting uh, on a, on a few different levels with me, the humor and the kind of the brand uh, message. Uh, but tell us about how Venables has, has evolved creatively over these past few years. Well, you know, Audi is a great uh, case study with Venables too, because, you know, I don't think Audi necessarily, uh, I think it's, it's one of these classic examples of the, of the agency over a period of years kind of, bringing a brand along and, and kind of t t trying to make them understand over a period of years the value of great creative. You know, Audi, I don't think, is a, is a natural, uh, naturally a, a very great creative uh, brand. But, you know, what Venables has done for them um, is so great. And, and you, look at, you look at just the spots this year, uh, the work this year, the commander spot on the Super Bowl that we've talked about. Um, you know, Duel is one of my favorite ads of the year, uh, the, the one that aired during the debates. You know, uh, you know, it says something that, that Venables went and got uh, Ringan Ledwich, you know, the rattling stick director, to make that. I mean, he's the guy that made, uh, everyone remembers him from, from making the Guardian Three Little Pigs commercial. And if you watch Duel, it's just the most amazingly choreographed. Uh, and, and this, you know, this stage setting is just incredible. It's, it's, uh, the, the decision to run it backwards is an integral part of the storytelling. Um, I mean, you just look at that commercial, and it's got a, a really fun payoff at the end. It, it's, it is a ridiculous premise, as Patrick said, but it really pays it off, you know. And we also haven't mentioned the desolation campaign that, that they did for Audi this year, too, where they, they, they filmed this amazing commercial out in the desert, and then 
essentially, it's this house in the middle of nowhere, and it's a you know it's a great place to drive your Audi around because you've got you know uh, mile mile after mile of, of desert you can just drive the car. But um, they also uh, teamed up with Airbnb to actually rent out this house. So we've talked a lot about Airbnb uh, on this podcast and how they you know how they make these great partnerships with brands. And you know Audi got into that this year, which um, was a great decision. You know we did. Uh, uh, we did a, a best ads ever video with Tiffany Rolf uh, that we published this week too, and she was talking all about the Audi Airbnb uh, campaign as, as her favorite campaign of this year. So, you know, it's it's breaking through, and uh, you know, to do that that kind of thing with a client that's not necessarily hardwired in its DNA to, to value creativity, um, it's you know, it's been a five or six seven year story of Venables taking this brand and, and turning it into. You know, it's producing the best uh, auto advertising in America right now, and that's a really uh, remarkable story. And then, you know, we haven't talked about Reebok either. That's another big Venables client, and they did some pretty interesting work for Reebok this year too. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think they have reached a new level. I think Breakthrough, it's kind of funny to name a 16-year-old agency as, as your Breakthrough Agency of the Year, um, but I was talking with Paul Venables last night uh, at our at our winner's circle party, and he, you know, I said, I hope you didn't mind that we were um, – named you Breakthrough Agency, even though you're 16 years old. And he said, are you kidding? We're, we're, we're thrilled, and, and uh, we're just glad that you guys are seeing what we're up to. I feel like we should also talk a little bit about uh, Ogilvy's Global Creative, which we didn't really get into. Um, they're our Global Agency of the Year this year, and they did amazing work all around the world. I mean, they've always been really strong overseas. Um, it's, it's remarkable that, that Ogilvy's New York office is almost like uh, secondary in terms of creative firepower. Um, you know, everybody knows Ogilvy uh, for Ogilvy Brazil, of course. They they spearheaded the Dove Sketches campaign back in 2013 that won, like, every award under the sun. Um, but this year, they had some amazing work. You know, they had uh, the Breathless Choir out of Ogilvy London for Philips was really amazing. Uh, over in Germany, they did the Mein Kampf Against Racism campaign, which was remarkable, too. Uh, they had the Make Love Not Scars, which Ogilvy India did. Um, the woman who had been the victim of an acid attack doing makeup tutorials. It, it was such uh, impactful work there. Um, of course, David is is an, an Ogilvy agency, and they did uh, the Man Boobs campaign, which was really kind of fun. And then Ingo in Sweden uh, is also an Ogilvy agency, and they did the Swedish, uh, Swedish number, which was really one of the most remarkable campaigns this year, where they, they set up a hotline. Anyone in the world could call Sweden and be connected to a random Swede and just talk about the country. Um, so that was amazing. And, and you talk about New York. I mean, obviously, they've got um, enormous clients that are, that are uh, you know, difficult in many ways to, to push creatively sometimes. Um, but, you know, IBM is an example of an Ogilvy New York client that's got a pretty proud creative history. And, you know, the Art with Watson campaign that they did for them this year um, was pretty interesting, too. So, uh, you know, just as, as a creative story, I think Ogilvy um, had a great one to tell this year. It, it was also fun to be in Amsterdam for the Epco Awards a few weeks ago and to just really think back on how much cool work has come out of Amsterdam this year. Uh, we ended up, I was a juror on the Epco Awards, and we ended up uh, giving uh, one of the top awards to the next Rembrandt uh, from JWT uh, and uh, JWT Amsterdam. And, to, to you know, I got to visit Wyden and Kennedy Amsterdam, but that just feels like a, a, a I, I could have stayed there an, an extra two days. I think, Katie, you also got to tour uh, some of those offices while you were out there, right? It just feels like Amsterdam's kind of having a moment as, as a great place for creative work. Yeah, definitely. I, I got to see a couple of the agencies and just kind of experience what the culture is like over there. And it really, as you said, it just seems like it's going to be a a city to look out for um, and the creative work that's going to come out of it. And, and I feel like we should also give some credit to uh, McCann. McCann had a really impressive year um, with, uh, they, they did the uh, field trip to Mars uh, with Lockheed Martin uh, that, that won a ton of awards. It was basically a virtual reality tour bus that drove kids around and gave them the sensation of being on Mars uh, and had a lot of great work uh, kind of around the globe as well. And Anomaly continues to be just a, a new business juggernaut. I think uh, the creative quality of their work is always, uh, uh, you know, interesting to debate. Uh, they just don't quite have the, the depth or complexity maybe that a um, – that a drove era widen does, uh, but you can you cannot 
you know, do better than uh, Anomaly's doing on the new business front. Uh, so certainly one that we talked about a lot this year. And as always, you know, I continue to be interested about it, if Anomaly can build on these wins. Uh, I think they were something like 14 for 14 of, of their major new business pitches. I mean, just were sweeping their wins. Uh, so be interesting to see if they can kind of continue to build out the, the quality of their creative to match the, the quality of their business uh, growth. Uh, so that that's, uh, we're, we're, Probably out of time, so I'll go ahead and round out. But thank you so much to our panel, uh, to Tim, to Patrick, to Katie. Uh, thank you each for joining us. Uh, and uh, always an exciting issue and, and really fun to look back at the agencies of the year. Congratulations to our winners. Uh, congratulations to all those agencies who had a really stellar year. Uh, and uh, we will continue this, a similar conversation next week when we talk about our ads of the year, uh, where you'll hear some of these names come back up again. Uh, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, uh, about why we chose uh, some of our options for agency of the year, for ads of the year next week, give us an email at podcast at adweek.com and uh, we might read your note on an upcoming episode. Uh, we will definitely read it internally, if nothing else. And coming soon, uh, Tim has been hard at work on that uh, list of the ads of the year, so you can expect to see that with a really cool cover story uh, and a rather famous star on uh, next week's ad week. And we'll, we'll be spending a lot of time talking about that. So join us for that. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, please take a moment, if you have not, to review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews uh, mean a lot to us personally, but more importantly, they help new listeners discover the show. Uh, so we appreciate you taking the time to do that. Thanks, as always. I'm David Griner with Adweek.com, and we will talk to you next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.